Yo! Oh my God. This is it. I'm so excited for this. This is season two of Opening Set. Uh, thank you for everyone that's been rocking from the first season to now and the rest of the season. Shout out to my man, John Reyes, the producer extraordinaire, who will uh, making sure this all sounds very good and awesome. This is the voice of King Most, your host. We have a very special episode today, but before I tell you about that, we got to talk about um, a little housekeeping as always. Follow us on all socials under Opening Set. It's on Instagram, SoundCloud, MixCloud. And if you didn't know between last season and this we're now on spotify which is a very popular platform you can find us there all episodes past present and future and also make sure to subscribe like i said share tell your friends about tell your fellow dj friends tell your fellow creatives about opening set i think we're doing very interesting work that is worthwhile to uh, check out and the first guest for season two on opening set is DJ Toy, formerly Shanghai based, now in LA. She's also a manager for Bohan Phoenix and a music industry veteran. Her start with music wasn't as a DJ, but a classically trained pianist. And in her talk, she talks about how musicians take their craft seriously and do they should do the same as well. My background in music actually was in classical music. I was playing piano really seriously before going out to New York, doing competitions, recitals, and practicing every day. Like I was like real serious about it. So I think when I started DJing, I kind of approached it with like a similar sort of mindset, which was practice a shitload, get your shit right, and then do your thing. Just because classical music is like that, like you're constantly practicing and drilling and refining and like really honing in on your craft and knowing that sort of takes a lot of work and upkeep. So I just assumed that DJing was the same shit. And more awesome points in the conversation, she talks about the perception of blogs and websites, entrepreneurship as a DJ, and how it relates to, I guess, family life, and also how to navigate industry politics and a DJ career as well. Here's the thing. I literally met her second before we started recording. But I think as a creative person, we can always find similarities with other like-minded people, no matter what. And just to give you a heads up, we also recorded this a couple months ago, so things have changed for DJ Toy. She's not based in Shanghai. She's now in Los Angeles, just to kind of give you full context. You can find her on all social media platforms under Toy Wears Da Pants. That's a DA. So find her on social media, find out what she's next, and uh, yeah, check her out. Thanks, y'all. Opening set, King Mo's John Reyes. Let's go. All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to Opening Set, season two. Ooh, we've made it. Shout out to my man, John Reyes, the show producer, making sure this thing runs right. Of course, this is the voice of King Most, your host for the next, uh, I don't know, hour, give or take. So today's special guest, DJ Toy. Give it up for her. Air horns. <laughs> you're from here, which is San Francisco, but you spent a lot of time in New York, but also you're now overseas in China. And yes. Particularly, uh, in, Shanghai. in Shanghai. In Shanghai. After 10 years of New York City living. Okay. So you, you, it's kind of hard to pinpoint. And also you're, it is. you're on the younger side, so you've kind of spent a lot of time all over. So it's kind of hard to kind of say where, where yeah. you're from specifically. I'm secretly old but really yes. okay well i mean yellow stay mellow brown stay around you hey, know, black don't hey. Crack. Yeah. absolutely secretly old that'd be a dope name for like a, a label yeah for my new indie label yeah secretly re release old. only on cassette yeah yeah, old. yeah yeah or like cd-roms <laughs> CD yeah for the only point. if they're referred to as cd-roms yeah <laughs> so then the first thing you do when you touch down back home in Shanghai, what's the first thing you do oh man that just confused me for a sec. You said back home. And so the first thing I thought was get pho in San Mateo. Oh, shit. Because okay. I still definitely consider this place home. You know, I haven't lived here for almost 12 years, but I've been back pretty often. So the Bay, for all things considered, is still home. Right now, current other home, I guess, is Shanghai. And I think the first thing that I do when I get back is eat food. <laughs> what, <laughs> it's like what, the best. What food in particular? Oh, man. See, the thing with Shanghai is like, there's so many different types of Chinese food specifically. And so I'm kind of just like constantly surveying that. Like there's no shortage of diversity within the Chinese food umbrella. So yeah, it's a lot of that. In New York, are you also eating as well? The first thing? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> the first for sure. You, you know, like you get past customs and then go straight to a Popeye's or a, I don't know. <laughs> We're just talking about Popeyes. Before. Well, fortunately, uh, we have Popeyes in China, Damn. so yeah, yeah, it's pretty lit out there. Okay, we were talking off <laughs> mic earlier that I just had Popeyes for the first time this week. Congratulations, so everybody! Told, yeah, so to be told <laughs> this thing that I feel like I've just discovered myself is an international phenomenon is fuck is kind of a little boggling. So, so after That's you okay. come home, you eat, you kind of get acquainted and reacclimated, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing crazy. I eat, I take a shower, I go to sleep because 
Man, the 16-hour time difference between here and Shanghai is some shit. Yeah, I bet. Also, in the culture shock, obviously. Sure enough. Do you yeah. still get that for being someone that's been so traveled around the world? You still, does that kind of still carry with you? Yeah, I think it's less of culture shock and more so just like this. And, and this is like one of the most incredible things I find about traveling is just the sense of wonderment that you feel in the first 24 hours that you spend in a new place, even if you've already been there already. It's like... There's this window of time where no matter how tired or hungry or exhausted you are, there's kind of like, you're like, oh shit, I'm somewhere new. Like, it's time to get it. Like, whatever I'm doing here, whether I'm relaxing or whether I'm working, like, I'm just going to do that shit to the fullest. I don't know. It's it's kind of a rush that I get from moving from place to place, I guess. Damn. So it's like maximum joy the whole time. It's like, how can I get the most out of everywhere I'm at? Yeah, I'm just just stoked. I'm just stoked. Yeah. And how long have you been doing this kind of of cross you know, country class, cross global thing? Man, so it's been a little over a year at this point. You know, up until then, I was in New York for about 10 years working. I worked in the music industry. Sure. Like, we'll talk about that later for yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Sure. And so I got to travel a good amount for that, but mostly domestically. And I kind of came upon an artist that I now manage named Bohan Phoenix. He's like a Chinese American rapper who was born out there, grew up in the States and is living out there again and just kind of got familiar with China through him. And it kind of inspired me to go out there more and everything. And basically I was getting tired of life in New York and we'd put together this like three and a half month long tour for him through China, like in only China, which is like one of the only places in the world where you can really tour for three and a half months because they're yeah because it's fucking huge it's insanely big um and so it was it was kind of around that time that i decided to get rid of all my shit in new york i like quit my job i left the city in like less than three weeks sold all my stuff and then so for the first like four months after that i was kind of just living nowhere and and traveling and touring with him getting to know different parts of china different parts of asia we went to a few other places as well And then kind of after the tour ended, I sort of settled more permanently in Shanghai and then have been traveling for DJing and for work and whatnot, mostly in other parts of Asia, but also went to France um, a few months ago. Oui, oui. I don't, that's like the five French words I know. Très bien. Tu parles très bien. (laughs) uh, Je m'appelle Patrick. Yeah. Bien fait, bien fait. Oh, shit. Enchanté, Patrick. (laughs) Oh, okay. We've gone international now. Okay. (laughs) Look at us. Well, okay. For our our friends are listening to kind of give you a roadmap, you're a DJ from here, New York, and you decide to stay with DJ and quit your other job in Mm -hmm. marketing and jump into management, which sounds like a totally logical like thing to do to jump around that you yeah. real quickly how did you decide i'm gonna do this management thing as an i mean what was because you're an artist yourself or well, a little bit more than that the Tell DJing us. stuff had always been something i did more so for fun like it, it, originally when i first moved out to new york i was totally doing it for survival when i was a student and everything after that it just kind of like continued to be something that i did mostly for fun that made a little extra money which was great I was working pretty much always in music and I was booking shows at big talent agencies for a while. Then I was working at the Fader magazine, 88 Rising for a hot second and then Red Bull. So I'd always been kind of like in the music space and, you know, the world of Asian American artists and creatives is is still relatively small. And so Bohan's music, you know, fatefully made its way to me. And then we sort of just like started to become friends. I was helping it out with stuff here and there. And then after a while of just kind of like working together and seeing what this kid was on and also the world that he had access to in China. Which was what? Which was just a huge, huge growing music market where people were more excited about hip hop than they ever had been. That was really interesting to me. And so, you know, the decision to work with him didn't even really feel like a choice. It just felt like the right thing to do. Like it felt just intrinsically and also you kind of saw the financial potential of getting on something. The financial potential and then also just like this personal sort of wanting to understand what it was to do something similar to what I had always done, but in a place that was different in a place that I had a curiosity about and a connection to. And what, uh, what things did you learn in DJing kind of translated into that, into this managerial role you have for uh, both? Oh dude, everything. I mean, I think aside from knowing good music, the logistics of how to play it and to be a DJ and stuff like, you know, you're your own best promoter and everything. Like you understand how to work with people, different kinds of people, corporate clients, clubs, promoters, whatever it is. Doing that between DJing and then being on like very much the business side of it for many years. Like it was just kind of a a natural progression for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, you probably knew like 
how artists are emotionally and oh for sure yeah how they tick and what they need to be told and kind of mitigate damage control things like that yeah yeah definitely so so we're talking about Chinese hip hop you said like it's like his open new lane like so who are so far like the hip hop legends like if there's uh, we have like the Rakim and the Nas and Outkast and Tribe who are those for Chinese hip hop man if if, if there are any are there some kind of so I mean. Chinese hip hop, I started exploring a lot more. I'm actually working with a new media company right now called Radii, R-A-D-I-I. And we write a lot about culture in China. It's all in English, meant to be for an American audience to basically learn about culture and art and stuff that's going on in China, just because China's like pretty misunderstood in the rest of the world, right? Like Bloomberg talks about it like it's the fucking Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is what Wait, We'll it talk is, more about the global politics. I'm sure yeah. there's some, some way to well. shit. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But for hip hop, I learned a lot of stuff through working there and working with people there. And ultimately, you know, sort of what I found is that hip hop kind of like in China breaks down into sort of like two different time periods. There's sort of like the underground old school time period where people were like battle rapping, like people were like doing the A mile thing. It was like very boom back, very lyrical and everything. And it's in, um, Ch- it's in, and it's in Mandarin. Mandarin. Okay. Yeah. There was definitely a community around it, but it was never commercially viable. It was never very big. It was very underground. And, and what cities? Beijing was like definitely a big city for it, but Xi'an, which is like sort of in the, South Central West is China. It was also a big city. It was small underground pockets and everything. And so that has existed for a while. Even a lot of Chinese people who grew up in China don't really know that much about it. In the last year and a half, hip hop has exploded in China in a very commercial way that all kind of came as a result of this show called Zhongguo Yoxiha, which means rap of China. And it was basically like a contest show, kind of like show me the money, American Idol, like that kind of concept. But specifically for rappers, they get the celebrity judges. They have like the McDonald's sponsorship. Like it like went off. 180 out of nowhere. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just it just kind of went off. Like it was it was bubbling a little bit in a very underground way. And this was kind of like the mass media push that it needed to like become this like huge commercial thing, like very much a part of pop culture, pop culture, discourse and everything. Yeah. It was like suddenly, you know, somebody like our mom's age knew what the word freestyle <laughs> Whereas before, like no knowledge whatsoever. So this is like the industry's attempt to like create an actual entire industry for the next 20, 30 years. Like, so this show through a couple steps removed, it will now make future millionaires. Yeah, basically. I, I, I mean, it's already made millionaires. Like this was in 18 th- months, just like that. Yeah. This, this was the quickest shit I had ever fucking seen. So the first time I went out to China as an adult, it was 2016 and it was in September. And I went with my artist Bohan and we played a show in Chengdu with a group called the Higher Brothers. Oh, which I've heard. Yeah. yeah I heard of. Who yeah. I signed to 88 Rising when I was there for a short time right after that, basically. So we played a show in their hometown, which was like about 300 people. And then we went back and did the exact same bill in September the following year. And it was like 1,200 people. Wow. At a ticket price that was like five times the cost of the previous. So it just, the market just kind of like exploded in so many different ways. So in that, in that time period, is it almost like before the reality show, are the, all the artists that were kind of like in pockets, are they kind of forgotten? Are they still have a relevancy or? I mean, it really depends. Like I think a lot of the younger artists that were kind of like bubbling up, like ended up on the show and kind of like caught a new wave in kind of a different way. And then some of like the old school cats also joined the show. And then other people who didn't join the show at all, like my artists, for example, definitely caught some of the excitement from it. Suddenly it's like everybody knows what hip hop is and they're just kind of like trying to learn more about it. And and that, you know, trickles down to the other artists that weren't necessarily a part of like the the show part so, of it. So is there kind of like a debate? Because, like, you know, here in America, like at one point people still like debated like real hip hop versus like fake oh, rap. Oh, hell yeah. And, and, and this happens in China as well. Oh, That's, absolutely. Wow. Man. I was hoping people were more open-minded, but there's still the line in the sand type of thing. In a way. And I think it works in a very different way out there where like there's this new generation where all they've ever known of hip hop is its arrival through the most commercial means possible next to fucking McDonald's chicken wings and, and, and the equivalent of like vitamin water sponsoring it. Right. And in their minds, like there's no harm, no foul in, you know, you getting your money and the brand thing or whatever being like the, the concept of being a sellout is just kind of like synonymous with being successful in a way. And a lot of people don't think anything of it. I think it's a lot of like the folks that were listening to hip hop before this came about and people that were more discerning listeners that kind of like 
have that like, oh, like this shit is whack. Like, <laughs> inauthentic, right? They can't put their finger on it, but they, yeah. they sense it. I think from my perspective and from a lot of perspectives shared with me from people that come from that generation and come from that lineage of like hip hop listeners and stuff, a lot of the newer shit I do personally think musically is less quality. You know, it's not as compelling or exciting. It's not saying all that much and everything. And, you know, I think that can be true of like a lot of commercial rap these days. Commercial music in general overall. Yeah, exactly. Always. Always exactly. Been, yeah. That's, it's, it's always been the thing. Yeah. So it's, you know, this dialogue is not so different than yeah. how it exists out here. Yeah. I always felt like people that look at pop music to kind of give them some great insight or solve the world's problems. It's like, you're looking in the wrong space yeah. and what you're going to do is just be more upset and more disappointed. Yeah. Like so, pump is not the answer. Yeah. Well, it's I don't, but it's almost like, it's also <laughs> understanding that people can exist and be their own creative person and they don't have to, again, like fix the world's problems. Ultimately, you have to kind of do the work yourself and, you know, look into yeah. whatever you need to find, look in, like, I don't know, just smarter spaces. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be ignorant for me and unfair to like a little pump for use an example to expect him to like, I don't know, like cure like real problems that happen in the United States. Right. That's no, like, totally. I was like, dude, I'm like 19, bro. Like, yeah. I, like I was, I was 19. I had no business doing anything really. Yeah. So. I think just to add one more thing, if I can, I think the thing that is irksome to a lot of like the older cats in this scene is that this moment is the first time that Chinese hip hop is really being exported in any way. And anybody outside of China is caring and they feel like, it's cheapening of what the heritage of this is to be only sharing this like commercial shit that is as they see of lesser quality. Cause there's, there's always been the stigma about creativity in China specifically that China can only imitate and can't create. And that's not fucking true. But when you listen to the most commercial hip hop that comes out of China, you might think that is the case. Oh, you know so they're, I mean? Yeah. So they're, they're kind of emulating, but the thing is also, and this is, it's like a slippery slope yeah. is that, American music, especially, you know, black urban music, hip hop and R&B is now like the world's music. Sure. And it's kind of gets replicated and imitated. And now this is the first time in, that I remember that it's almost, it's like a like a mutual thing now. Like there's mm. an influence coming from the outside of the world that comes back in. Sure, sure, sure. Which I wanted to ask. Um, yeah. I was just, I was, uh, I was taking a, a lift ride home and I was talking to uh, the driver and we're, I was saying like, Americans are very xenophobic when it comes to music. Like, We'll, we we only like American artists. We'll probably bend over backwards for like a Australian artist or like a British artist, but never Asia or South America. And, and maybe even Latin artists, that's, that's, they need like a crossover song or crossover sure. artist. Is that like a big concern with what's happening in your eyes with the Chinese hip hop? Or you're like, when mm. that's, that's too, it's further down the line. It's definitely a big consideration. I mean, I think for us, it's like, there's enough of like a sort of sustainable market for us out in China that like if we didn't have any sort of success whatsoever in the U.S., it would like kind of be OK. But, you know, we're both very tied to, tied to here in many ways and definitely want to make it out here. And I think we've kind of just regarded that it definitely is xenophobic in a way. But at the same time, like, you know, you can't really underestimate the power of individual communities of interest, whether that's Asian Americans, whether that's surfboarders, whether that's whatever it is, you know what I mean? I think that's just kind of like the, like the way that the music market has kind of fragmented the nature of it is to have these sort of like niche niches and, and, and whatnot. And I think there definitely is like a, a growing sort of niche for interest in music that comes from Asia, music that comes from abroad and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I also, I was going to say, I understand that, you know, K-pop is a totally different thing mm -hmm. culturally and musically and also um, Japan's relationship with like hip-hop and DJing totally different totally um, different times or whatever is there an influence on kind of what you guys are doing or you guys, it's so insular that that the K-pop is over there Japanese music is over there and we're over here or is it are you guys kind of from China you mean yeah um no K-pop is hugely hugely influential in China but on um, Chinese hip-hop and what you on Chinese hip-hop in, in a certain way yeah okay. no definitely like the sound and the look and just kind of like the stage production and some of the way that you like present an artist which is as as an idol and less of yeah. like they you go through these farms, like the yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. a very, very real thing, and it certainly exists in China too. And what about Japan's kind of relationship with hip hop? How does that affect Chinese hip hop? If at um, all, you know, I feel like it doesn't as much. Okay, at least in my experience, I think there's definitely an admiration for Japanese workmanship and Japanese artists and whatnot. But I would say, all in all, it's probably less like broad strokes influential on Chinese music creation than. Korean. Okay. Is, yeah. So I'm um, hearing on this, like I'm dying to know. So when you go and DJ a Chinese hip hop club, mm -hmm. tell me like three 
go-to bangers like all right and but they're still cool they're not like corny played out what are some like yeah let's say i was dj in china and like you need some bangers Patrick. yeah god i mean it depends on what city you're in oh shit right so beijing and shanghai is like the most international cities and so you can be a little bit more experimental and left to center there like you don't just have to play like the hits even though people obviously appreciate that i'd say like on the tour and mind you this was like last year when I was visiting some of the smaller cities that definitely like get less foreigners like man they're listening to like the same radio record hip-hop that we are out here like so for I think Kendrick yeah Kanye, I feel like at that time like God, what was I playing a lot I was playing like a lot of little Uzi Vert people just like love the trap shit people really like Joey Badass oh dope yeah I, I would never guess that yeah, yeah. no I think he has <laughs> some of the boom bap sensibilities that he, he's like good middle of the road artist to like please both of those generations of hip-hop listeners but yeah it's so much trap stuff like but Uzi, nothing, Cardi yeah. like all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah like the current yeah. hip-hops but nothing specifically Chinese centric like or just like, oh I mean yeah. if you want to play Chinese hip-hop yeah, out there yeah, like yeah. the higher brothers are probably like this last summer was kind of like the summer after their record release and they had a lot of tracks that were like really going off out there one of them i actually helped put together which was called made in china um made in china is produced by a friend of mine who lives in atlanta his name is richie south he's like an incredible incredible producer who's worked with like future and gucci and sort of all those atlanta dudes but we put this record together back a while ago and made in china was kind of a special record for chinese kids not only because it was fun and it went off and everything but it was completely in Chinese and it was kind of like a, a pride thing too. It was like this record's actually going off in the rest of the world and it's like our shit. Wow. Yeah. I'm, so it's almost, I guess, like uh, Kendrick's We're Gonna Be All Right, like that type of thing. Like, it, it's, definitely. It's, it's a banger, but like yeah. in a deeper meaning. No, totally. Okay, it, it's it, Higher Brothers, what's it called? Higher Brothers. Um, made in China. Made in China. Okay. Yeah, so what, what's two and three? What would be the two follow ups for that? Two and three. Like, if I'm doing a set, I don't want to, you know, don't want to get booed off stage. <laughs> and I'm struggling. And that Joey Bass doesn't really cut through as much I would right. help through. I mean, Pick Up the Phone actually is the same key as that track. So you could play that afterwards. I did that a few times. That was always my artist, like, walk on stage music. So that happened a lot. And honestly, like, literally any turn up trap is still track a thing. Okay, is so like, yeah, like, even if they don't something. know it, it's like so easy to understand yeah. a trap. Yeah. tune that like also just sonically yeah. it sounds big when you're DJing you want those big sounds. yeah yeah it's like, like meaty and like people are like oh I, I get that they feel it yeah yeah okay totally right. <laughs> what about the other smaller cities the less you said you're playing places that where you can kind of have more freedom. oh yeah uh for that I was I mean that that combination would work with like really any of these cities and whatnot I'd say like in some of the smaller cities that I went to of which there were like maybe 12 or 13 in China outside of Beijing and Shanghai. At that point, people were very kind of new to hip hop in many ways. And so playing like the more recognizable and more commercial stuff was always like getting better reactions and whatnot. Okay. So, so when you're DJing, what's like the cutoff point, like years? Would they know Hyphy out in Oh, no, dude. They wouldn't know. Okay. They so. wouldn't. I definitely have played some of that shit out there before and people are just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of bombed and you're like, you just went, what, so you played some hyphy and you're kind of, it's not going too well and you jumped to just something more contemporary, right? Yeah, just something current and okay. whatnot. So anything like, is 2010 too old for them? No, not necessarily. Okay. Like, I mean, you can play early 2000s shit out there. Like, Whoa, like people, which ones? I mean, and you could play like Ludacris and shit. Damn, like, play Nelly. Like, Would all you play Jaquan Tipsy? <laughs> We I would for sure play that oh, track. Oh, damn. All right. Score one for Jaquan. So anyways, <laughs> uh, we were doing an intro and like we were just kind of like talking. We kept the mics rolling and we had a debate about Jaquan Tipsy. I, What's there to debate about it? Defend your position. I don't defend. It's just like, I think it's a corny ass song. And I'm a dude who likes corny. I, I understand how more corny music fits and, and the necessity of it. But geez, oh, that's, I don't know. There's just some songs that you kind of hear and you're like... This is, it kind of could have stayed there. But at the same yeah. time, I play Nelly Hot in here. So what do I know? You know, it's, it's yeah, I just probably have some, some like regressed, terrible experience in my head. I just can't, I don't know. Right, it's right, right. Either that or we just have different like corn thresholds. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they're still pretty open. All right. And could you play like, I don't know, like De La Soul? No, nah, that's more, if at all, it's like For openings. like an older crowd. Yeah. Like, older hip-hop crowd. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I notice about China is if you're playing to young kids, they want to hear the same shit that young kids out here want to hear. 
right? Just generally speaking. But I think overall, the audience, in terms of like, will they go along with you if you play some shit they don't know, if you play some real left shit, some real like old school shit, it's not so different than out here, refreshingly, where it's like, if you have gotten them on your side already, you can take them wherever the fuck you want to go. Okay. So, uh, you know, this is like very surprising just hearing that, thinking that, yeah, the rules that we've, being a traveling DJ, the rules that we know these rules and it could still kind of work and save us if we're out. Oh, truly. Yeah, yeah. Truly. So when you come back to say New York to go back to DJing mm-hmm. or when you're coming out here, were you kind of prepping shit? I need to kind of like totally change the way I think of DJing or are you still like thinking hits always work? I mean, No, when I go back to New York, I mean, depending on where I play and stuff, I'm thinking about all the shit that I don't really get to play out in China. And like, mainly for me lately i've been listening to like a lot of like afrobeat and a lot of latin pop and there's just like nearly no market for that out there so when you're back in the states you're playing jay huss and jay balvin yeah i'm like trying to like just do the different shit that i only get to do sort of on occasion out there okay so and then but like legit real dance hall not like major laser dance hall yes (laughs) (laughs) again i play major laser all the time so (laughs) gotta gotta make that rent so uh, (laughs) Yeah, so the, and what were you playing out here in the Bay Area? Because again, just tracing back, Shanghai, New York, SF, it's, yeah. it's usually the other way around. So how, oh, are you, man. how are you changing style-wise every time? I am so like stylistically confused about what the fuck I'm playing. Okay. I, I have to admit. Okay, good. Um, that's what that's what you want to hear. That. <laughs> Open up, crack, crack it up and let us yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, the first gig that I did out here was Cuffin, which was great because I love R&B. I don't play a lot of it elsewhere and stuff. And so just... Got to play a bunch of that out here. And yeah, I, I have no idea what I'm going to play tonight. Okay. Yeah, Cuffin, for our friends listening, Cuffin is a very, is it, is it, we started out here, right? Hit Seattle. Okay, Seattle. It's a all R&B party, like all eras, like 90s about now. Um, our friends, uh, Roland, started it. It's in Seattle, Los Angeles, Long Beach, here in San Francisco. I think it's Sacramento. John Ray is our producer in his hometown. And there was, <laughs> I think there was a couple of editions in uh, New York City too, actually. Yes. So, yes. Um, yeah, that's, shout out to them. We're biased because those are our friends. So, yeah. you get, well, so you play a bunch of R&B and there's no, there's no R&B market in China? Less so. Okay. Less so. Like, I w- think. what R&B would work out there as God, a DJ? I, as I a mean, DJ, not as a regular. As a DJ, as a yeah. DJ. Anything that has like, I feel like anything that has kind of like a pop sensibility that you can mix with hip hop. Okay, so like Beyonce, Rihanna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally cool. That's totally cool. But like, I probably wouldn't play like one thing by Amory out there. Really? I don't know. That song's huge. Song is huge, but I just don't think people would know it. I think, I mean, that was a big song when it came out. I want to say a lot more. did that come out? Dude, like the same time. It was Rich Harrison, so he did Crazy in Love. So it was that era. So we're talking 2003, 2000 something. I always thought that song got crossover like really big because it was in like some Will Smith movie that was really popular called Hitch. Oh, was it? Yeah. I it it was that. like in a scene that kind of made the movie. So I felt <laughs> it had like this crazy uptick. I've never seen the movie. So maybe I'm just making this shit up in my head. So I mean, that's why I think. I, mean, I just like, think it's a good ass song. Yeah, it's a great song. It yeah. works. Like every, it, like it's one of those, all right, uh, I can't go too deep or I'm like, I'm kind of, the crowd needs a like get hyped again and they're a little older. So I hit him a little Amory one thing. Mm. All right. So tonight, uh, so, okay. So you have the R and B thing. So tonight maybe like a dance hall, Latin pop thing. Maybe, maybe I will do that. Yeah. yeah. Do that. Come on. Right. I, mean, I, I don't know. You tell me this is my, this last time being back here literally is the first time I've ever DJed in the Bay area. Oh word. Yeah. Oh, because wow. every time that I've come back here, it's been kind of during the holidays. It's mm, been family okay. time. Like mm-hmm. I haven't really, there's been a little less going on between that. Like, right around Christmas time. Okay. Um, okay. Well, now we're the best friends. We'll, we'll, best yeah, friends. we'll have more gigs. Uh, <laughs> Yay. So there's another question. Uh, you're talking about when you were out here, you weren't DJing at all. And you got into DJing via the, the Scratch Academy, right? Yeah. So that's where I started learning. But the interest in DJing actually started out here. I was still in high school at the time. I just like didn't really know how to learn how to do. I didn't, I didn't know a single DJ. It was more so I just saw what sort of like Cubert and Scratch Pickles and all those guys were doing. That's and I was nice. like, that's tight. I was like, Asian Americans gonna be cool. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and then not too long after that, moved out to New York and sort of serendipitously in my college dorm came up on this flyer that was advertising the Scratch DJ Academy. And it was like, come take a free demo class. And I was like, okay, fam, and showed up and did it. And then was like, all right, I'm doing that's this. It. So do you think that's gonna be the new norm for people to learn DJing now? I don't know, man. I don't know how how people are learning these days. I think at that time it was like 
I mean, unless you had somebody who was like down to be bothered by you all the time, like <laughs> it was pretty necessary because I learned on turntables and this was like before Serato was like really like controllers like basically didn't exist. And Serato was so uncommon. Like I think the first box had just come out. Oh, so you learned on vinyl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you're like me, you started working in clubs carrying vinyl, but then really got like your DJ yeah. gigs when you're in Serato. Yeah, I remember the first time I brought Serato, like the owner was like, yo, what the fuck is that? Like, dude, just watch. The kids still play songs? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> but how? Yeah, yeah but, like, don't worry, I got you. And it was great. Like I was like yeah. running through songs fast and doubling, doing yeah. all the stuff we, you know, like we couldn't normally do. Yeah. I was, I was doing some research on you and I love this quote because you said something along the lines of you want to be ready before you're like into scratching you spent like a year and a half yeah and then you're like i want to make sure my shit is ready before i start going in front of crowds oh for sure i'm paraphrasing but what was it yeah yeah i mean for me my background in music actually was in classical music i was playing piano really seriously before going out to new york doing competitions and recitals and practicing every day like i was like real serious about it so i think when i started djing i kind of approached it with like a similar sort of mindset which was practice a shitload get your shit right and then do your thing just because classical music is like that. Like you're constantly practicing and drilling and refining and like really honing in on your craft and knowing that sort of takes a lot of work and upkeep. So I just assumed that DJing was the same shit. I was pleasantly surprised to find it was like a lot nah. easier to mix a record <laughs> than it was to like <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, I was play rock on and off. But yeah, you know. <laughs> well, two things for that. One, thank you for giving a shit because I feel I got to be careful when I, I you know when I say this. I don't want to feel this way, but I do feel that idea of actually I got to make sure I'm good before I get in front of people is a very distant thing now. It's yeah. not a preoccupation. I, and maybe it never was, and I'm just in my head I thought it was. But thank you for that. Yeah, no. And why did you quit piano? <laughs> I didn't really quit piano. Oh, you did? Okay, good. Yeah, because I'm playing. studying piano now. Oh, good for you. Yeah, dude, it's hard. It's it's really good for your brain, though. Keep doing it. Yeah, no, Don't I, stop. I enjoy it. There, there are certain times I want to quit because I'm studying piano theory as well, like jazz mm-hmm. piano theory. And that's nice. like super advanced. And just, it takes a lot of what you're talking about, discipline and constant, yeah. you know, things like that. So yeah, you didn't yeah. quit piano. No, no. Thank you. Because every time people say that, I'm like, oh, why'd you quit? And, you know, so you no, still do it. I'll never quit. You never quit. And so what are you playing on your own? Are you still doing classical or just kind of... Yeah, do- just all classical. Never did jazz. Never did pop or contemporary music. A lot of Chopin. Chopin's my favorite composer. I really, I really, really love Rachmaninoff as well. Chopin is like such great music to play as a player because um, it's so like emotive and it's a bit flexible too. Like which is re- music from that time period, like you can be like more flexible with like the tempo and stuff. And like, it's, it's very like feelingsy. And Chopin was like such a pianist that like he wrote all of his music with like the technicality in mind. And it's just like very fun to like unpack that and figure it out. Uh-huh. So are these, so, so understanding, no, no, this is a DJ pop. <laughs> it, it, this is a podcast. And secondly, a DJ podcast. You're in nerd town. There's no, yeah. <laughs> okay, there's cool. no turning back. So, okay. So then, what did you take from piano? This, this specific type of piano training. Do you take into DJing? Was it a lot of things you kind of were able to connect? What are ideas you with kind of easy? Yeah, or? I'd say in the immediate, it was like a ridiculous, ridiculous practice ethic. Just like if I like wanted to like get this chirp down, like I needed to do it five million hundred bajillion times. And you were told, and, and it like, seemed like second nature to you. Yeah. Because okay. practice is the only way you get better. Like what other method is there? I think a lot of people don't really think about it that way. Like, Oh, figure in, it out. In DJing or in general? Just in general, yeah. just for things. Like it taught me a lot of discipline and a lot of like hard work and stuff. And so I think that allowed me to sort of excel quickly. And then when I was actually like mixing and playing out a little bit more, I think I was, probably just like more thoughtful about things like, you know, mixing in key and, you know, stuff like that, like making sure like the rhythms that I was mixing were like, you know, not clashing and everything and just having sort of like a finer tuned ear for that bit of it was like an advantage for me. Yeah. So when you say mixing in key, do you use the software, the Serato to mix in key? Or are you just like, you know this by listening to the song? You can just listen to it. Because when you're trained to do that, like it just, it comes easier. Like I didn't actually like use the like Camelot system until like maybe like two or three years ago when someone was like, you know, this is a lot easier than just listening to the song. I was like, oh, word. <laughs> well, two things for our listeners. Uh, Serato is our kind of our, our basic go-to DJ software. And then now you can basically drag a song. It'll give you like the tempo, the BPM, and also what key it is. And the Camelot wheel is, I because it's studying piano, it just, it's, it's a clock that just tells you 
how each key kind of, uh, maybe you should tell it, but I, I don't I know. Mean, <laughs> you, 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 you got the basics down. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like, you can think of it as like a color wheel where basically there are like complementary colors and, and contrasting colors and stuff. And, you know, you want to mix certain keys with other keys or the same keys yeah. in or order for the, it to sound good. Or like the major minor parallel, like yeah, yeah. One of the C major is like a minor or something. Is that, is that? something like that? Yeah, man. I think it's been so. A minute. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, you, you know when you hear it. So, um, sure, sure, sure. so when you in a club, you're hearing someone else DJ, like, oh, great mix, but I'm so out of key. Does it kind of make you, does it bother you? It, or, it, it, or? Yo, it's so, I can't deal with it. Really? Like, I think yeah. the one thing that DJing has done for me is like, if I go out somewhere and the music isn't good or it's mixed really poorly, like, I can't fuck with it. What about if it's out of, everything's out of key? Cause Cause I, 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 even it, it just, it's, it hurts. It hurts. Like, I, even the blend is clean. It's eight bars, eight bars. It's still, oh, it's the, the clash. I mean, it depends on how bad the clash is, but if I feel the, the clash is quite bad. Like it, it, it takes me out of the moment and like, I'm really not on the snob shit. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? But I just can't get past that. You can't get out of key mixing. Yeah, dude. I'm like, dude, I would rather you beat slam. Like God. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> this is, a, this is a new port. Cause I think a lot of DJs we've talked about, you know, would you rather hear expertly mixed set, but it's still kind of boring or a great set of songs, but they flow well and they're not really mixing. So you, why don't you just do both? Well, now we're, not all, we're, not, we're not all classically trained piano <laughs> players. But you got Camelot now, don't you? Yeah. Well, I, I can tell. That's one of the good things about being a learning piano and studying is that I can now also like, oh, you know, that bass line sounds a lot like this bass line. Or, oh, yeah. I think those are in key. Or when I, when I mix them together without looking at the program or, or the Camelot wheel, I can tell, oh, this is in key. And that's kind of a good thing, which I, I recommend all DJs to have like a little bit of music training it really makes a big difference. But yeah, I guess next time, if you ever see me DJ, I got to make sure everything's in E flat minor because otherwise... <laughs> Better be. Because yeah, I'm leaving. I'm gonna, no, I can just like, yank my USB and they're like, you <laughs> fucking well, he ain't shit. So <laughs> no, but that's good. I get it. It makes you a better DJ. We're jumping to something else. Your brother, a pro gamer. <laughs> oh my God. Shout out Kevin Toy. Kevin, you. Kevin Toy. Okay. All right. So uh, I have to ask, and you always talk about like, family and upbringing. Sure. Are your parents more like, Wow, I, my daughter's a DJ and my son's a pro gamer. What the fuck? Because as immigrant, I mean, I know you're, I read about you, you're uh, second generation, but it's, there's still mm -hmm. the immigrant mentality. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Are they both kind of like... I think in the beginning, they were definitely kind of apprehensive about it in a way. I mean, both of my parents are born and raised in the US, but specifically in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes them different from a lot of children of immigrants that might have grown up in other parts of the U.S., right? Um, they're also both independent business owners, and my mom's side of the family also were. So they always understood this sort of concept of wanting to do something for yourself your way, right? I think for me, like, career-wise, like, I think they've always... I've always kind of like downplayed the importance of DJing in my stuff and talked a little bit more about, like, the professional side of my career, which was... For as risky seeming as the music business might be, like I worked at some of the biggest companies in it, and I think they always took a lot of comfort in that. So it's always been all right, you know. I think my brother was definitely more difficult for them to stomach just because the concept of being a professional gamer at the time that he was first starting to do it was so untested that it just didn't feel real like, at all. To them. Everyone's still like outside of esports, we're all like, whoa, what the fuck? We're all <laughs> yeah. so, so you're actually kind of like the dependable one. Like we're, they're counting more on you. I know, believe it or not, yeah. right? Well, I, I think, and then again, I think that's something that I definitely can identify with. You know, when I told my parents, you, sure. know, you know, I was in college and like, yeah, I'm DJing full time. And when you start kind of saying like these brands, then it's like, oh, okay. Oh, you know, like I've done Red Bull stuff and just like you have like, oh, I know what that is. So yeah. you're not just DJing in a bar for like 10 people. Right. Or, or you're just seeing you travel and and being in a magazine. So yeah, I guess all parents, immigrant or not, need their DJ child to have some type of anchor to make them understand what it is. No, totally. So totally. when you started working for 88 Rising, the fader was that kind of like their big, okay, well, are, are I she, think, but she's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, when I first... My first job out of college was working at William Morris Endeavor, which is yeah, the biggest huge. talent agency. And so they were always like, they were like, okay, cool. That's like a real thing. They provide healthcare. Like you're like, you know, making a salary and someone's actually paying it yeah. tight. And you have sick and, days and all the things. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All the like normal people, adult things. So that took a lot of the pressure. Did it take a lot of the pressure off of DJing? Not in terms of doing it, but you know, making sure that your parents were happy. Yeah, it? no, totally. And and I was happy about it too. It didn't feel like a compromise at all. It was just like conveniently palatable for them too. The DJing stuff, they were always cool with it. You know, they were always cool with it. Mm -hmm. And then you having kind of 
real world experience is that kind of always been like a fallback, not just financially, but just more emotionally. Like I can always have this to kind of rely on. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Like I still, you know, to this day, like I, I definitely spend a lot of time DJing. I care about it immensely, but I still sort of consider my office job type career as more of the long-term play for me personally. And it's actually kind of been something I've struggled with a little bit in that I've so many times like contemplated DJing full time. And to be totally honest, I've just been too afraid to do it. It just doesn't feel nearly as like stable and secure and, and whatnot. Um, even though on the flip side, it is instantly rewarding emotionally. And I can't lie. It's allowed me to see the world. Yeah. I mean, has there been a time when working in the industry has that kind of been, I guess, a clash of interest between DJing or is it that was kind of the work hand in hand? Um, there, there have definitely been times where it's been a clash of interest, but I've been really, really careful about how I navigated it. For example, maybe like when I was at the fader, right? Like the fader in the eyes of, let's say like an artist or an up and coming rapper or something was like a desirable place to be associated with. And so as a means of trying to get to the fader, they would like book me for some shit or be like, do you want to open for me? And in the hopes that in return, there would be like, I would premiere their next song or something like that. I mean, I, I had to deal with that a lot, but like, I just kept it really straight up all the time. Like that's, that's kind of the only way you can do it with that stuff. Like music business, music generally can be very wishy-washy if you let it. And so you just have to regulate it. Yeah. Kind of be very direct. Yeah. And, and, and then also I feel you could find out who are people that are just really down for you when they say, Oh, I'm so glad yeah, I'll book DJ toy. This may or not result in anything, but she's cool and she's a good DJ and fuck it, let's have her come and rock. So, yeah. 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 And then maybe down the line you probably thought, actually that person stuck by me who had nothing to offer them. So maybe now yeah. I'll offer them something. Yeah, and and totally. And I can't, you know, I wouldn't lie if I were saying like at the time I was working at the Fader and some of these other companies, I had a lot of friends who were A&Rs and publicists and record label people. And sometimes people would book me because they wanted people like that at their show or at their event or whatever. At the end of the day, like I'm not too bothered by it because like those are my friends and they're going to come out if they're going to come out. But wow. it happened a lot. I, I always thought like, you know, when you get booked, because, you know, you're talented and you have a draw, you're being a certain type of person. Yeah. I never thought it'd be like, yo, she's going to bring hella publicists. So let's book her. That's such a weird yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I mean, it's kind of like when you find these brands that book like an influencer DJ because they're going to bring their hot Instagram friends. It's the same shit. It's like, oh, she's going to bring all the A&Rs. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, uh, <laughs> no, because you probably not. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking about the whole, uh, you know, people try to book you and think they can get into the Red Bull or Fader world. I mean, for, you know, artists, that does matter. They've made us kind of care that it's a big deal. I mean, you working behind the current, is it is that a, is that as true as we think it is or it's touching? What do you mean? Well, I, I think if someone said, oh, yo, uh, King Most, with your premiere your mix on the Fader. And it's like, oh, I think that's like a huge deal. But right. um, I don't know. Is it really? Is it? I don't know. Like, I, I feel... It kind of depends. It's almost what you make of it. I mean, to be featured on any blog right now is less powerful than it was in the time that I was working there and the time that was like in the height of it. Because when I went from the booking world to the blog world, it was kind of like right around the time the weekend was first taking off. Oh, House of Balloons. Yeah. Because was, yeah. he basically got a Coachella offer off of a ridiculous Pitchfork album review. And at the time I was like, wow, that's power. Like if you're going to go, like if you're going to be able to to basically make or break an artist by like writing a review like this, like that's the part of the business I want to be in. And so I went there and I think in this day and age, it's just not quite the same. I mean, media changes quite quickly. And so I think like in a way, a lot of like the cosigns that you might get from any blog, whether it's, you know, Fader, Pigeons, Complex, Vice, whatever, is kind of like an industry badge. Like it's easy to put on like your EPK and be like, see, or get a the guy at yeah. blah, blah, blah says I'm fucking cool. Like uh -huh. I think it's certainly valuable in that way. But in terms of like reaching new fans who are actually the people that really take care of you and make other people care about you, it's maybe less influential than it was in the past. Yeah. yeah. So as, you know, DJs that are like grinding and making sure they grow audiences, where do you think is a place that they need to be in the next, like now um, for the next two or three years? Man, um, it's hard to say because I feel like it's really tumultuous right now. Building out so like event 
you know, sort of event series, like parties and whatnot that people trust and, and everything is super important. Like the kind of situation where you can see that a bill is put together by like a certain crew or whatever. Like boiler and room. yeah. And you don't even need to look at who's playing or who the artist is or who the sponsor is or whatever the fuck. It's like, you know, that shit's going to be quality. I think that's a really powerful thing. And then I think especially for DJs who don't want to stay just local, you know, finding sort of like a regular touch point and dialogue with your fans and your listeners, which takes a long fucking time to do, um, is my biggest regret for not investing more time in like, you know, putting up mixes regularly and stuff. I think that's super important. Like, for example, I have a friend named Derek who lives out in New York. He goes by the yellow Arkell. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And y'all know him mm -hmm. because he's tight as fuck and because he's really done a great job of like presenting himself online to people outside of just New York city. Right. Um, he has this great sort of like regular mix show called one giant repost. That's sort of a roundup of his favorite, most recently released tracks usually comes out like, you know, every two weeks to a month or so. And it's great. And it's always quality. He's really good. He doesn't push like a promotional agenda and stuff, but it's like doing something like that has allowed him to sort of like travel, go to other places and sort of like, you know, really kind of show out as like a, a curator who yeah. is a dope ass DJ. Yeah. yeah. So, well, returning back to, uh, you said you wish you would put more time into putting on mixes. Does the kind of, does the wall that happened that is in China, the like technology wall, mm -hmm. does that kind of prevent you from that? Is that just like a time thing? Or? It's really just a time thing. Okay. I think for me, it's like, I've, I've never DJed full time. It's never been my primary source of income and I haven't prioritized the things that could have helped me work towards making it that. I mean, you can still do it. There's no... <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm just saying like 10 years of doing this shit. If I had been like doing something akin to that for 10 years, like who knows like where I'd be right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can start now. I mean, it, you sound like you're, you're doing well, like you're doing good for yourself. So <laughs> I mean, I've listened to a DJ toy mix. Gee, thanks. Yeah. Well, I, yeah <laughs> I'll let you know when the next one comes out. I mean, well, <laughs> next one, when did you drop a mix then? What was the last time you did uh, The last time I did something was actually the first time I did radio. I did it for this online radio show called Hotel Radio Paris in Paris. And it was like founded by this guy who, uh, Jean Charles, who like, I think he used to manage Brodinsky's, like been in the scene for a really long time. They've had some super cool guests. I did that. And that one I was super proud of. Like I, so it's you the could, only you mix that, that exists of you. No, no, no. There's, there's a lot of other okay. stuff. I did one about a year ago for hype Bay actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. I that think was John sent it to me. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's showcasing all Chinese. Yeah. There artists. was like some Chinese and some Japanese artists mixed in with sort of like the like American soup du jour. American soup du jour. Yeah. Just <laughs> like, you know, the things people were listening to to be Bits. like, see guys, we're not so different. Yeah. We can do this crossover thing. That's dope. Come on, xenophobic Americans. Lighten <laughs> up a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, so you, it sounds like you kind of take, you're invested not just, you know, business wise in, in Chinese hip hop, but also emotionally. Like this is your people, your, your oh, culture. For sure. Wow. For sure. It's, a, it's a crazy, crazy coming together of a lot of different things where it's like, there's like kind of a self-discovery aspect in it too of getting in touch with my roots and being there in a time where um, creatively things are, are booming in a way that they haven't before. And there's, there's a sense of pride around that amongst Chinese nationals. And it's cool even as somebody who, who really still very much reads as a foreigner out in China to like be able to take pride in that's that tough. in some way. And yeah. you got to that point through, through music, through DJ. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of one things I hope people kind of get, uh, not just in this podcast, but just in life as DJs that like, there's gonna be a moment or things that connect you to like a bigger idea than just, you know, what time is my set and am I going to crush it? Like there's, there's yeah. bigger things to, to, to feel and, and ask about. No, totally. You know? Totally. And, and, you know, you're talking about this, uh, you said Chinese national and we're talking about earlier in the current state of global politics, mm -hmm. how does this kind of affect your kind of next, what do you down the line? Um, considering our government and your government, does that give you any kind of doubt or any kind of nervousness of what you can be doing for career wise? Or you just come as a go? Or how does it feel? I mean, I think for me, I'm definitely, I'm definitely concerned about the current state of things, but I think how it affects my personal work and the things that I care about, I would say not as much. I'm not the kind of person that wants to leave my destiny up to the musings of others, so to speak. And so whatever comes to pass with Trump or whoever the fuck comes next, like 
it is what it is and I'm gonna keep doing my shit and be educated about the matter speak up when I think it's right to do so but that's kind of how I feel about that I think you know for me I kind of like exist in a space that is a tremendous privilege to be in which is this kind of crossover space between east and west I play Chinese hip-hop I play American hip-hop I manage a rapper that speaks Chinese and English I work for a media company that writes in English about culture in China I think this ground is a really interesting one to be on and I think whatever might happen with politics and business Culture is going to be what it's going to be. Damn. Slam dunk on that one. <laughs> it's like when they land, like the, the perfect dismount and like 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. 10. Cool. Thank you. So when you're out traveling, what are some things you always carry with you to kind of make sure your life is livable and happy and, you know, you can move forward? Oh, yeah. Essentials in the bag. Essentials in the bag, for sure. Extra charger. Okay, as you are right now. <laughs> Extra charger, which I have right now, charging in, uh-huh. in the wall. Shout yeah. out your wall, thank you. Shout out electricity. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always travel with like three USBs and they usually don't have a set on them, but like sometimes I'd be pulling up to places that only have CDJs and like shit is janky and I'm just like, all right, I guess I got to like record box this one. There's that. And I always have a Wi-Fi box on me because... I don't want to get a SIM card in every single place that I go to, but if you have Wi-Fi everywhere you go, you can work from anywhere and you can contact people from anywhere and get your shit done. And download songs at your gig. That you, download songs. It's like, shit, I don't have this. I need to get it. And and, yeah. and you can just do it. Yeah, yeah. Final question. <laughs> All right, let's say, uh, you know, you're walking on the Tonight Show, you're getting called into court, you need a song to get you hyped for a gym workout. Oh my God. What is one song you think about? You put on your Spotify via your Wi-Fi box. Those are all very different occasions. We, I, I, trust me, they're all they're all for me. They're all the same song. So you listen to the same shit going to court as you do going no, to the gym. No, no, no. Well, maybe <laughs> I mean they'd be very similar. But anyways, neither here nor there. I ask you the question. I'm the host. You're the guest. <laughs> fine, fine. Right now, I'm really feeling the song called "Allo" by a female producer in London named Mina, and it features a rapper from Ghana. Oh, and wow. it's like super tight. And that song just like really gets me going. I don't know for court, but like for the gym. Yeah. <laughs> for the gym. For life. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it's, for court too. I Fuck mean, it. Why not? Tell the judge how you really feel. Yeah. There you yeah. go. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, where can people stay connect with you from now on? I am on all social media and Mixcloud, SoundCloud as Toy Wears the Pants, D-A. There's a character limit on Twitter, unfortunately. So that's T-O-Y-W-E-A-R-S-D-A pants p-a-n-t-s so check me out shanghai new york bay area san mateo san mateo arco gas station arco gas station <laughs> shout out the 650 yeah <laughs> thank you very much toy talking about the pants opening set thank you for coming on thank you thank you